Good morning, sir. If you're not late, come on in. The sermon's just about to start. Oh, are you two together? No. Oh, okay, you you stand right there. Welcome to South Tulsa Baptist Church. Thanks, so sir. glad you're here. I have a nice seat for you. <laughs> Thank you. Everything good? Yes. Comfortable? Yes. Let's stand together as Dan reads our scripture for us this morning. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. This is the word of the Lord from James chapter 2, 1 to 9. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. James really does paint a clear picture of what favoritism could look like in a worship gathering just like this one, doesn't he? We tried to act that out for you in our little skit but the reality is this kind of favoritism partiality is all too real in our culture and can be all too real in a church like ours as it would have been for one of the many churches to whom James was writing and we don't know if James was writing this and used this example just as a hypothetical situation to make a point or whether he had actually heard that this exact thing had happened or was happening in one of those churches who would receive his letter, receive his epistle. A few weeks ago, our staff, all of our ministers, we wrestled with this question. Who would not be welcome in our church here in South Tulsa? And we wrestled with it from a couple of different angles. We wrestled with it from the angle of who would not feel welcome, even if it wasn't intentional. And then we wrestled with it from who would actually not be welcome, perhaps, in our church. For me, I have two categories of people that if a situation ever developed, I wouldn't mind asking them to leave. One would be the person who is a danger, the other would be a person who is a distraction and intends to be a distraction by their, their behavior on purpose. 
outside of those two categories i would hope that we would continue to grow as a church that would be a welcome space for anybody who's not a danger or a distraction who perhaps comes here seeking to hear what god's word says and to be around people who indeed know jesus christ as lord but when we were talking about wrestling with this tough question as a staff we really had an interesting talk you know we we talked about things like skin color we talked about things like who someone votes for we talked about things like how someone is dressed or what their social standing appears to be we talked about what someone's clothing might say if it had a phrase on it or what bumper sticker might be on their car would that person feel welcome here would that person be welcome here and here in james chapter 2 as we continue discussing this thing we call church and talking about how the new testament specifically constantly talks about the church not as a building not as a set of programs not as an online platform but as us we are the church the body of christ is the people and even if we didn't have a building even if we didn't have programs and we didn't have an online broadcast we would still be the church just by the very nature that we are the people of god in jesus christ and james says that inside the church we can represent the kingdom of god the character of the kingdom of god how god sees people and sees things right now in our community we don't just have to wait for his kingdom to come in its fullness or for that time when we're all together in glory when we all get to heaven and giving this picture of how the church can represent christ's kingdom he deals with this issue of partiality of favoritism and he says showing no partiality is one way that we can represent christ's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven when jesus prayed that way when he used that language was he not saying we don't just have to wait until we go to heaven to experience what it's like to live in that kind of community that god provides for his people in the here and now but one of the ways that the church has to stand out as a community that's not like every other that's not defined by those same divisions and barriers and walls that go up between people one of the ways that the church can exemplify that we are different that the light of christ is shining in us we are no longer drowning in darkness is by following this instruction my brothers and sisters believers in our glorious lord jesus christ we must not show favoritism interestingly in the book of james jesus christ is only named twice and one of those times is right here in verse one and this tells me that this matter that james is addressing is directly related to what it means to be christ-like that jesus christ himself modeled this for us so that in any culture if we want to represent christ faithfully this matter of favoritism and not showing partiality is really really essential it is indeed a matter of christ likeness 
versus not Christ-likeness in this world. James can rightly be called the New Testament wisdom book. We often think of the wisdom books of the Bible being in the Old Testament. But James is not like most of the other letters. He doesn't follow the same pattern, the same structure. Instead, he gives us chunks of wisdom in lots of different areas because James wasn't just writing to one church. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was in the mother church in Jerusalem, and he was writing out to a lot of churches, believers that were scattered all over the Mediterranean. And he gives us an indication in chapter 1 that most of the people he was writing to were Jewish background Christians, which means they knew their Old Testament. They knew their scriptures. And that's why James uses so frequently throughout this letter references to the Old Testament to speak the language that people would understand. And much like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, James doesn't just address one issue or two or three, but a wide range of life, everyday, practical issues that could come up in any church, even in a church like ours, and reminding us what it looks like to be Christ-like and to live with godly wisdom in the midst of those circumstances. In fact, one ancient Christian, Theophylact, said James actually, in his Greek language, wrote in a way that used the older kind of words. We might say it like this, James is kind of writing old school here. He's writing to those Jewish background believers who were a little deeper in their knowledge and experience, who should know better than this. And he's speaking their language, and he's saying it starts with you, who are the key leaders, the sources of wisdom, or at least you should be in your church. When he talks about favoritism, the word there that he uses literally means something like, I like your face. To show somebody favoritism, I like your face. Or to show somebody the lack of favoritism is like we often say, I don't like your face. That's the kind of language that a person would use. And James describes this scenario much like we tried to act out for you. It really wasn't supposed to be humorous, but I guess it kind of was. That favoritism based on appearance or status can happen in any assembly. In fact, writing to the Jewish background believers, what the word he uses for assembly is synagogue, something they're very familiar with. And he tells this story again. Maybe it was true, maybe it wasn't, but he says a man comes in and he's wearing a gold ring and fine, new, shining clothes. Everybody notices him when he comes in. Because he is displaying not only wealth, but rank. But then another person comes in right behind him, a poor person with old and filthy clothes. The word there is literal dirt on that person's clothes. And again, everybody notices when that person walks in. And you say to the man wearing the fine clothes, here's a good seat for you. But to the poor man, you say, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. And James asks, if you show that kind of special attention and you slight the man who is poor, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Again, James is writing to people who, who should have known their scripture. They should have known that there was a consistency to the Bible that says God's people are not supposed to 
discriminate between rich and poor or other categories, but instead are to, to treat every person as welcomed and as a neighbor. That God's people, when they treat people with discrimination, are being sinful and judgmental in their thoughts and actions. And that God has been telling his people all along that this is his character and this is his expectation. Consider these two scriptures from the Old Testament. This was our reading earlier in the service from Leviticus 19. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Then in Deuteronomy, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows what? No partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you, you, don't forget your roots. Don't forget where you came from. You are to love those who are foreigners because you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Another one of the apostles, as we've gone through this series, we've looked at the book of Acts and we've looked at the writings of Paul and John and now James. Another of the apostles, Peter, though he grew up knowing the scripture, though he was a follower of Jesus, for some reason it was still a little bit slow for him to finally come to the point where he realized that he was no more deserving of God's grace than anybody else. There's this beautiful moment in Acts chapter 10 where the very Spirit of God speaks to Peter and says, I want you to go to the home of a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He was a Gentile. He represented the enemy. And, and this is way outside of Peter's comfort zone. Peter prays to the Lord. He says, surely, God, you don't want me to touch something that's unclean. God, surely you don't want me to sit at the table and share a meal with a Gentile, with a soldier, with someone who's not like us, who's not from our people. And God says, Peter, listen very carefully. Don't ever again call something unclean that I've made clean. And when Peter enters the home of Cornelius, he sees not only a faithful and righteous man, but he sees that Cornelius and his household are eager to know the God that Peter knows. And as they confess their belief in Christ as their Savior, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, the light bulb finally goes off for Peter, and he says, look, this is the great equalizer. Believing in Jesus Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what makes us brothers and sisters. And Acts chapter 10 records Peter's powerful words. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message that God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Peter finally gets it. There are also those who will say that, well, James and Paul must have disagreed on some things. They will say, when you read Paul's letters and you read the book of James, they're there seems to be a disagreement between the two, maybe even a conflict. Maybe the two are not together. 
I don't use this word often in church, but I'll use it here. That's garbage, okay? James and Paul were both apostles, both led by the Holy Spirit. They're not conflicting each other. They're not at odds with each other. But Paul, who says some very similar things, is, is reminding us of God's character in terms of favoritism and the way his kingdom economy works. James is then bringing it down to earth and saying, we don't just have to wait till we die to experience this, but we can live this out in the church right now. Look at Paul's teaching. To the Romans, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, because they had the word first, and then for the Gentile. But there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, just as Peter experienced in Acts. For, Paul says, God does not show favoritism. And to the Colossians, Paul restates the same language. Anyone who does wrong will ultimately face judgment. They will be repaid for their wrongs. But remember, there is no favoritism. Where you and I find ourselves, no matter where we come from, what our pedigree is, our status, our rank, our physical characteristics, our social standing, no matter where we come from, where we find ourselves on equal footing is at the foot of the cross. Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. At the foot of the cross, every one of us are having to reckon with the fact that we all sinned against God. And because all of us are sinners, we equally need a Savior. And when we look at the cross, we see the clearest demonstration of just how much God loves us, that he was willing to forgive us, that he was willing to allow us to be citizens in his kingdom, and that he was willing to say, you are not just my servants, you're my children. You are my sons and daughters. And we don't just have to wait until we die or Christ returns to live like that is true. James is saying what Paul also said, but he's reminding them it's not enough just to say, well, God will just make it all right in the end. No, he's saying this is a matter of representing our glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in our relationships in the church, we can be a present picture of eternal reality that the kingdom of God is already coming on earth as it is in heaven. And in the church, we can have a picture of that that can be seen nowhere else in all of creation. When it comes to favoritism, partiality, there's no place for it in the church. On the contrary, as we move into the middle verses, in God's kingdom economy, his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. These are the words of Jesus, but honestly, we don't usually live like we believe they're true. Like we really believe the last shall be first, the first shall be last. These are not only the words of Jesus, but this is a consistent theme of Scripture. That God 
loves and has regard for the downtrodden. He hears the cries and the prayers of the poor, of the oppressed, of the vulnerable. Look at Scripture. It comes up over and over again. When those who are exploited and oppressed call out to God, He hears them. And for those who are oppressing and exploiting them, God turns His face against them in judgment. And he says to his people over and over in Scripture, that better never be true among my people. Yes, others will exploit, others will oppress, but that better never be true inside the house of faith. James, the apostle, the younger half-brother of Jesus, who, by the way, was not messing around at this point. Not long after he wrote this letter, he died as a martyr. For his faith. James says, there are several reasons why favoritism is just wrong, and truly it makes no sense inside the community of faith. First, favoritism is wrong because it's the opposite of God's own character, just as he's demonstrated. It's the opposite of God's own attitude towards us. Verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Favoritism is the opposite of the character God once displayed among his people. Second, favoritism is wrong because it dishonors the poor. Verse 6. God's people are supposed to honor and lift up the poor and the oppressed and the humble, not dishonor them. Third, favoritism is pointless and as I said, it defies logic since, as James asks there in verse 6, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are not the ones who, who are rich the ones who are dragging you into court? We know from our reading of history that many people all over the Mediterranean were in fact being exploited by wealthy landowners and even by some of the elite members of the Jewish community. They were pushing people out of their land, saying, I want what you have. I have no rightful claim to it, but I want more land. I want more wealth. I want more power. And so we're pushing you out unlawfully just because we can. Sounds a lot like what we see even happening right now in Western Europe, doesn't it? I just want what you have. Not only that, but we also can look to history and see examples at this time of the rich paying off or stacking the courts to get favorable verdicts when they would drag people into court to get their land or to collect on their debts. They would pay off people and do it wrongfully. And James says some of those people are the ones exploiting your brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet they walk into your assembly and you treat them like the guests of honor. Fourth, favoritism is wrong because those very people who are exploiting you, dragging you into courts, verse 7, are also the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong. What is that noble name? Well, noble name means the name of the king, right? Which king? The king of kings. These are the very people who either outwardly and openly mock Jesus and what you believe, or they're mocking him because they claim to believe in him. They claim to live by his word, but their life and their attitude and their words are the exact opposite of what our glorious Lord Jesus Christ modeled for us. They are not Christ-like 
yet they claim to belong to the Lord? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong, and yet you treat them and elevate their status above others, and yet the poor you disrespect? As we talked about when we looked at 1 Corinthians, in Christ's body of the church, there are no second-class members. Just like in God's kingdom, there will be no second-class citizens. We are all sons and daughters of the king. We are all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And I've loved to use as an example before of our unity as a church, these mosaic windows that we have in our worship center. Because they beautifully tell stories of Jesus, which we're called to do. But if just one of those tiles, one of those pieces of glass was removed or was missing, the picture would be incomplete. And if the light was shining behind it and shining through it, everyone would notice that even though the rest of the picture looks beautiful, because that one stone, that one tile, that one piece of glass is not there, it's not right, and ultimately it doesn't look that good. In the same way, if just one piece of the body is removed, is left out, the body is not complete. It's not whole. It doesn't tell the picture that God intends for us to display. For the church to resist favoritism, to be a place where God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, and where in humility, those who want to be first become servants to all. The first shall be last. The final thing James says is we must all adopt what he calls the royal law. We're each known by the noble name of our king, and the royal law that the king of kings has given to us, the royal law that every command from God related to how we treat others is summed up, is simply what Jesus said on multiple occasions. They asked him, Teacher, what is the greatest command in the law? Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That law hangs over all the others. Every other command with regard to how we treat others, it falls under the umbrella of that simple command. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus used the word neighbor, he used the biggest word possible. Because neighbor is bigger than family. Neighbor is bigger than tribe. Neighbor is bigger than nation. And it's certainly bigger than self. Love your neighbor as yourself. And by doing this, all the law and the prophets will be fulfilled. Again, Paul and James, not in conflict with each other. But Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5. The entire law is fulfilled, Paul wrote, in keeping this one command. Which one? You guessed it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, to the Romans, in Romans 13, Paul wrote, Whatever other command there may be, they're all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's what Paul wrote. James says, if you really keep the royal law, the law of our king in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then 
then you will know that you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And anyone, James says in the next verses, who sins in any area of the law is a lawbreaker. You can't say, well, I kept this one command and I only broke this other one, so I'm good. No, if any of us break any command, we're a lawbreaker. And James says clearly favoritism is one of those sins. And when we commit it, when we show partiality, either to the rich or to the poor, when we favor someone over another for the petty reasons that are often underneath that kind of treatment, we sin. We are lawbreakers. Who would not be welcome here? Whenever we wrestle with a tough question like this, may we remember James chapter 2. That people with more means than others, more influence, people who are closer to the center of society as opposed to being on the margins, they're not more loved or favored by God just because of their social location. People with a particular skin color are not more loved and favored by God just because of the color of their skin. People with that pedigree or a certain status are not more loved or favored by God than others. God doesn't favor us because of our physical characteristics. Thanks be to God for that. He doesn't favor us based on the color of our hair. He doesn't favor us based on our body type. He doesn't favor us based on what's in our bank account. But to those who have experienced God's grace and favor, to those who would say, I have been richly blessed, God says that blessing, that favor, comes with a responsibility that you would be a blessing to others. And that in the church, because you're the people who have experienced so much grace, this will be a place of grace. Because you're the people who know that you've been welcomed into the kingdom of the king, you will be people of welcome. Because you are people who have received so much mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. This will be a place of mercy, of love, and of grace. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. May it always be so in Christ's body, the church here in this world, and may it always be so in this local church, this body here in South Tulsa.